Hey everybody, come on in. It's time. It's time for Coffee with Scott Adams. Yes, you were wondering, did my wife Christina come home from her first solo pilot trip? And she did. It was all good. She hasn't cut my hair yet. I know that's what you're looking at. That'll happen later today, with all luck. But first, what do we need to make this day exceptional? It's called the simultaneous sip, and all you need... What do you need? You know. You need a cup or a mug or a glass, a tanker, chalice or stein, a canteen, jug or flask, a vessel of any kind. Fill it with your favorite liquid. I like coffee. And join me now for the unparalleled pleasure, the dopamine hit of the day, the thing that makes everything better except the Hunter Biden sex tape. It happens now. Go. No, I was wrong. It made the Hunter Biden sex tape better, too. Huh. I I didn't see that coming. And neither did she. Well, let's talk about the news, shall we? Of course we shall. Turns out that five aides of uh, Vice President Pence have now been tested positive for the uh, coronavirus. I'm getting an update. Hold on. Uh, Update. Uh, Vice President Pence's five aides plus one fly have now tested positive for coronavirus. Uh, I hear the fly is doing well, as are the other five aides. Now, I don't know about you, but... If you had a choice of a vice president who was invulnerable to coronavirus, which apparently Pence is, because um, he's the only one who doesn't get it. All the people around him, they're dropping like flies. Um, but not him. Pence is invulnerable. So there's that. Um, so yesterday, there was a disturbing video going around. How many of you saw it? No, I'm not talking about Kanye's interview on Joe Rogan. We'll talk about that in a minute. I'm talking about, yeah, the Hunter Biden sex tape. Now, when I heard that there was going to be one, that there was one on the, the, the so-called Hunter Biden laptop, um, I said to myself, well, there's probably not really. I mean, who actually who actually takes a sex tape of themselves and then just keeps it on their laptop and then takes that laptop to the shop? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't want to give tips to Hunter Biden, but if I were, it would go like this. Find an offline place to store that stuff. Maybe not right on your laptop. That's just my little tip. Don't put your crack smoking and your sex tape on your own laptop and then take it in for service. But uh, if you were wondering, uh, if you're wondering if that laptop actually belonged to Hunter, I would say it either belonged to Hunter, or there's somebody else in the world who has a terrible, terrible taste in porn. Because, I, you know, in my case, of course, it's the first time I've ever seen uh, sex on video. But uh, I imagine that other regular professional uh, porn is, is better made. I've never seen any, but I know you have, of course, because you need it. But uh, I, I've never seen porn. Yeah, let's go with that. All right. Um, I feel like the saddest person of 2020 might be Abraham Lincoln, and he's dead. Because 2020 might be the second worst year for Abraham Lincoln. The first one involved going to a play. But this year, he's associated with the, quote, Lincoln Project. How would you like to be uh, honest Abe Lincoln and be associated with the Lincoln Project? If he popped back to life, if we found a way to reanimate him, can, can you just imagine that? 
you know, you know, there's a dead Abraham Lincoln. He's in his he's in his tomb, and we find a way to reanimate him. And he's like, <laughs> and he wakes up like, oh, 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 all right, what's new? What's new? And they go, well, your uh, thing's not going so well for your uh, legacy. Here are some tweets from the Lincoln Project. What do you think? And honest Abe would look at him and say, kill me, kill me. And then they'd say, "Um, but the good news is we made a lot of statues of you. So there are lots of statues. Um, Okay, well, one just came tearing down. But there are lots more. Okay, well, there goes another statue. Poor Abe. It's a bad time to be. It's a bad time to be Lincoln, even if you're dead. Here's a question I've been uh, wondering. Do you know how you can get used to anything? I talk about this psychological phenomenon all the time. And it's way more important than it sounds the first time you hear it because it, it explains so many things. There's a lot in our world that can be explained by this one thing. You can get used to anything. That's it. It sounds like nothing until you realize how common and how powerful it is in terms of explaining your world. Here's something that we got used to, and it it was just sort of gradual, and it sort of snuck up on us, and now we've accepted as normal the following thing. I'm going to describe the current situation, and you tell me if there's any exaggeration in this. It goes like this. Political advertisements and political debates both have the same um, element in common which is they intentionally misrepresent the other side and then they criticize their own misrepresentation of the other side. Now, if you did that once in a while, you know that would be something your, your opponent would call out, oh, you liar, you're misrepresenting me. That's sort of the way it used to be, I think. But if you were to, if you were to look at a, a political ad or a debate today, there wouldn't be anything else. In other words, there would be no case in which the political opponent accurately describes what the other candidate wants to do. Never. It won't even happen one time. Everything that one candidate describes and criticizes about the other won't be true. It'll be some weird, weird version they made up to criticize. So I ask you this. What's the point of it all? What is the point having a debate in which the topic of the debate is exclusively things that aren't happening. Think about it. Every claim that, uh, that uh, Biden makes about Trump and kind of every, every claim that Trump makes about Biden is some weird, distorted version of the, of the reality on the other side. So why do we need a process to watch two people talking about things that don't exist and won't exist but if they did, how bad it would be. Right? The, I don't see any point to that. The only thing you get out of it is sort of a, a sense of the, let's say, the mental nimbleness or the, uh, the clarity of somebody's thinking, maybe. But you don't see anything about policy. Nothing. Because it's all just made-up stuff and criticisms of made-up stuff. There's nothing there. And somehow we got to the point where we've accepted that, that's our process. Imagine if you drew this process out on paper before you had implemented it. There had never been an election. There had never been any democracy. You're just inventing it today. And you say, all right, how about this? We'll have two candidates who will just uh, lie about what the other one wants to do and what the other one has done so far, and then they'll criticize the lie that they made up. And then when they're done will go to the other candidate, and then they'll do the same thing. They'll invent a bunch of fiction. They'll criticize their own fiction, and that's it. That's the whole process, and we'll call it a democracy. Who would have approved that system? (laughs) Who in the world would have approved that system? It's a ridiculous system. But the fact is, nobody has a better one. And... Part of what you realize when you see how ridiculous the system is, and it still sort of works, that's the weird part, is our system works. People get elected, and then the public says, okay, that was a fair election. We voted for who we wanted to vote for. And we call it credible, 
and then we go on with our lives as if we had done something that wasn't ridiculous. It was completely ridiculous. We might as well flip a coin. But I do think you get to see at least a little bit of the intelligence uh, of the candidates. Maybe that's all you get out of that. Um, uh, Over in uh, France, uh, Macron has vowed to crack down on radical Islamism. Islamism? Why do you have to crack down on radical Islamism as opposed to radical Islam? I wonder why they have to add the ism. Anyway, that's just what is said in the news. And here's my question for you. As an American, for those of you who are Americans, when was the last time you worried about a radical Islamic attack in the United States? Now, we're not out of the woods. It's not like it's, not like it's never going to happen. It's not like we'll never have another one. You have to assume these things will pop up. But correct me if I'm wrong, France has a national problem that the United States doesn't, and it's because of our president. Am I wrong about that? Is it wrong to give Trump credit for the thing he said he would do that apparently has been done, which is to make us safer from radical Islamic terrorists? Because I'm not seeing a lot of radical Islamic terror attacks. And apparently if you're in France, you can have your head cut off for publishing the wrong kind of cartoon. I've published some bad cartoons, but nobody's, nobody has yet uh, tried to take my head off. Um, so I feel as though one of the problems that Trump has running for re-election is that when you solve a problem, it goes away, right? Every, every time you solve a problem, it's one thing you don't have to think about anymore. So to the extent that Trump has solved some problems, you know, we're not worrying so much about all-out war in the Middle East. We're not worrying about so much about the Islamic terror attacks on the homeland. We're not worrying so much about even, um, I would say, immigration became less of a concern in our minds. I don't know if it's less of a concern in reality, but it could be just because coronavirus cut down the uh, volume. Somebody says, "Wait for it." Yeah, I suppose it could happen. I mean, there, there's there's nothing that would stop it from happening. But I've got a feeling that whatever the administration is doing behind the scenes, which you might not like because it might affect your privacy and everything else, but I feel like the United States can't be that lucky. It's got to be skill, right? It would it be fair to say that whatever we're doing with all of our FBI and, and other intelligence services, et cetera. Could we say at this point that it's skill that has kept us safe in recent years? I feel like it. It doesn't feel like luck, because I don't know why the other side would have wanted to stop attacking. I guess the number two guy in Al-Qaeda got, or, or one of the top guys in Al-Qaeda got, got grabbed in Afghanistan yesterday, so Al-Qaeda is not, not doing so well. Um, so anyway, I, I feel happy whenever I don't have a problem that France has. Speaking of France and the other countries, the coronavirus is raging back and raging back in the United States. But uh, the second wave is going to be really different from the first. Because the first wave of coronavirus came with gigantic death tolls. The second wave could also, well, will also, uh, kill a lot of people. But I'll bet it won't be anywhere near what the first wave was, meaning that I think we've reduced the death rate by 85%. Um, I see in the comments somebody's using the word attenuation, which is the word for when the virus sort of evolves and mutates to the point where it's less lethal. But we haven't seen any signs of that. We know that other viruses do that, but I don't think the coronavirus has yet shown any, any sign of attenuation. But maybe. Maybe it happens quickly when it happens. So we'll see. But um, I feel as though the second wave is going to be lots and lots of infections with fewer and fewer deaths. In other words, I think our death rate might continue to fall, not quickly, but will sort of trend down while the infection rate goes through the roof. At some point, that infection rate 
won't reach you know, herd levels because I don't think it's going to get to 50 or 60%. But maybe it doesn't need to. Maybe it doesn't need to. Maybe a lower amount will be enough. All right. Um, one of the things that Hunter Biden talks about is that Obamacare uh, made it, I guess Obamacare made it illegal for insurers to charge women more for health care, even if women cost more. Now, of course, women could cost more, I suppose, if they uh, live longer and also uh, have reproductive-related expenses. So what is the point of insurance when the insurance is not related to uh, the actual risk? (laughs) Now, you say to yourself, but Scott, 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 you can't have insurance that treats one gender differently or one ethnicity differently. How would you feel if they charge different rates for different ethnicities, even if different ethnicities did have different uh, costs? Take the coronavirus, for example. It has a bigger impact on black Americans. Would you think it was fair that black Americans pay more for health insurance because they might have more, let's say hypothetically, if they had more expenses because of coronavirus or other things? No, we wouldn't think that was fair. But I wanted, can you do a fact check for me? Isn't car insurance still based on gender? Can somebody do a quick fact check on that? Because I haven't checked it in a long time. But don't we charge more for older people in healthcare? How is that fair? Don't older people, um, they do cost more, right? Healthcare costs more if you're older. But why is that fair? It's, it's not fair to charge women more if they actually cost more, but you can charge senior citizens more. Why did we just randomly decide that was okay? You know, isn't that just another form of discrimination? And what about car insurance? I'm seeing some uh, confirmation in the comments. I don't know if you looked it up or you just know it. Yeah, car insurance, you can charge more for men because men have more accidents. But is that fair to me? Because I'm the type of man who doesn't have many accidents. In fact, I think I've caused zero in my life. I don't believe... I've been in several accidents, but I don't believe any of them have been, objectively speaking, my fault. Uh, I think I've always been on the receiving end. Now, why am I a safe bet? I don't even drink. I don't drink alcohol. Can you imagine how much less risk you have as a driver if you don't drink alcohol? (laughs) It's a pretty big difference. Pretty big difference. Do you know what uh, lower risk I have just because of my personality? Because my personality is I don't take big chances on things that don't have a big reward. What would be my big reward for driving 20 miles over the speed limit as opposed to my normal 10? Not much. So why would I take extra risk for no extra reward? So my personality, even though I'm a member of that terribly dangerous class called men, it's not fair to me. I, I was just born a man. Why, is it, why do I have to pay extra? Totally unfair. Now, it, it kind of... Uh, I'm not really saying it's unfair that men are ch- charged more for car insurance because we do, we do have more accidents... There's no doubt about it. But if you're going to take the standard that insurance can apply in some cases, what would be the argument for saying in other cases, oh, no, in other cases, it's all right? I don't know. It's an inconsistency, let's call it that. All right, how many of you have heard the three-hour Kanye West interview on Joe Rogan? Now, the first thing you think when I say, It's a three-hour Kanye West interview on Joe Rogan. It's literally three hours of almost exclusively Kanye talking. Do you think that would be interesting for three hours? Yep. (laughs) Yep. It is three hours in which you almost can't, you can't tear yourself away. It is so freaking interesting, the Kanye interview on Joe Rogan. And I want to talk about it for a minute. Even, even though some of you haven't seen it, I'm going to assign it for homework, okay? So your homework is, you really have to listen to this. 
And don't listen to it just for its entertainment value, but it's completely worth, worth it for just for the entertainment because he's interesting from the first second to the last second. Kanye doesn't know how to be uninteresting. He just doesn't know how. He's like Trump in that way. You put Trump, you know, you put Trump on the stage and you just say, all right, you got three hours. Try not to bore me in three hours. Trump could pull that off. He could keep you interested for three hours. Kanye did it too. I'll probably watch it again. <laughs> it's that good. Now, if you say, but what is it he does? You know, what, what's the thing he does that makes you so entertained or interested, Scott? And I would say, it's hard to put your finger on it, but I'm going to try. It goes like this. The first thing I was looking for is how crazy he is, right? You want to see how crazy is Kanye, because you know he's crazy, right? You've all heard it. It's been in the news. He's admitted that he's been, you know, he had some uh, medical care for mental health questions. He has referred to himself as being uh, diagnosed bipolar. So that's what you're looking for. And you're definitely going to find it, right? I mean, if he's got all these problems and he talks for three hours, you can't hide a mental problem if you talk for three hours on camera, right? So you're going to see it. Wasn't there. Wasn't there. But instead, there was an alternative movie, the one I wasn't watching on my screen, but I got to you know, shift my movie when, when Kanye described it, and it went like this. If you're bipolar, one of the, you know, one of the signs for that is that you have this manic phase where, where you think you can conquer the world and you can do anything. And you're full of energy and full of ideas and you know, you're, just, you're just sort of crazy. But what happens when you're Kanye and you say something like, I'm going to be the most important um, musician in the world. But then he goes and does it. So, in retrospect, it sounded crazy, right? When he first said it, but then he went and did it. And then he probably said something about being, I'm imagining, something about becoming the best or, or you know, most important designer in the world. And you say to yourself, Kanye, you know, it was weird enough that you became one of the most important musicians in the world. You know, that's weird enough but you're not going to do this other thing. And then he does it. He does it. He says he's worth $5 billion. Probably. And so now he's one of the most uh, you know, richest people in the country. So then he thinks, he says, uh, I'm going to build some you know, uh, homes and shelters. I'm going to design a town. I want to become the leader of the free world without ever having any uh, practice as being a politician, and you say to yourself, Kanye, Kanye, that's a, that's a little bit too far. All right? It's one thing to be a big musical star. Okay, you got lucky. Okay, you got lucky twice. You started your, you know, your fashion and clothing thing, and it's a gigantic success. Sure, and all right, you, you decided that you wanted to respond to what he describes as his calling from God, and create sort of the most you know, impressive, big church situation outdoors with you know, choirs and stuff. And Okay, it's a gigantic success. Okay, all right, so you did three things, but Kanye, you're not going to become president of the whole you know, world, you're, you're not, or president of the United States, or as he says, leader of the free world. You're not going to do that. That's crazy, Right? They actually medicated Kanye to make him stop thinking that way. Think about this. They medicated Kanye. They medicated him. They medicated him for being Kanye. They medicated him. It's crazy. So here's the thing. Before I watched Kanye on Joe Rogan, and if you had said to me privately, you know, all right, Scott, I'm not going to tell anybody. 
because I know you like you like Kanye, so you might not say this in public, but just privately. What do you think privately? Do you think he could be president? Two days ago, I would have said, mm, you know, I think he's a great guy. He's got a lot of great skills, and I think he's a great leader. But I don't think he could be president, because president's kind of a, a sort of a particular skill, and I just don't know that he has quite you know, that game. He has an amazing game, but I just don't know would it fit in that realm. That's what I would have said two days ago. Then I watched the Joe Rogan interview. And yeah, I, I'll accept that some of you will disagree with me, but after watching the Joe Rogan interview, he could be the president of the United States. And I don't think there's a thing missing. Not a thing. He's smart enough. He looks sane enough to me. So unless there's something he's really holding out, I want more of the crazy stuff. I don't want less of it. Because the stuff that, uh, that he's... he's the, the things that people say he's crazy about, he's actually ahead of his time. He's actually just working at a different level than other people. Uh, let me give you one example of it. He talked about this. When he speaks for three hours, it's not like other people where you're judging each sentence. It's like, oh, that was a good sentence, that was a good point, or that was a good paragraph. He actually says this out loud, that when he's speaking, he's creating a symphony. In other words, until you reach the end of it, you don't know what you got. Because he's creating not just a series of points, but he's creating a whole, and he's painting this frickin' masterpiece while you're watching it come together. So if you were watching, let's say, a master painter create a, a painting, you know, the, the first would be maybe you'd pencil out the, the general shapes and then he put down some base colors and stuff like that. And none of that would look very interesting. It's not until you know, the last dashes of paint are on there you can say, whoa, I see what you did there. I, I didn't see it from the beginning, but now that it's done, whoa. And that's the feeling you'll get after the interview. And he says it consciously. He tells you he's building this thing with words, and then you watch him build it right in front of you. It's, it's phenomenal. Now, I'll tell you what um, the, the things that really jumped out at me uh, about this in no particular order. Uh, number one, oh, let me, let me, let me uh, just divert for a second. Because Kanye is so interesting, and even though Joe Rogan is a you know, gigantic star in his own right, when you put him in the same room and on the same interview with Kanye even Joe Rogan will sort of disappear, right? Because it's, you know, Kanye's a million wattage and, and as big a star as Joe Rogan is, it's just hard to be Kanye. But I'm going I'm to tell you that you will not notice it because all your attention is going to Kanye. But step back for a minute or, and even watch the whole three hours again to see the best interviewer skills you've ever seen. The best interviewer skills you've ever seen, period. I've watched and been in a lot of interviews, all right? So I've been, the, I've been the recipient of many, how many interviews in my life? Maybe thousands by now. At least many hundreds of interviews, but maybe thousands. And you can really tell the difference between a good interviewer and a bad interviewer. And what Joe Rogan did in this interview is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Because first of all, you have to create a safe situation. Um, and like with negotiating, negotiating is not just the things you do during the negotiation. It's also setting the table. So that when, when you walk into the negotiations, you should already have an advantage because you've created a situation that's favorable to you before, before you even start, because you already started, you set the table. And Joe does that partly just by being who he is and creating this product that people trust, and they know who he is, and they feel that they can you know, open up to him. So the first part of his genius is the whole, is all of it, right? Everything that got him to this point was good, or else he couldn't be here. But then in the interview, remember, you're, you're Joe Rogan. You are a star, you know, you're, you, you give uh, 
stand-up comedy, you've done you know, movies, TV, you've done all these things, you know, you're a Spotify star, etc. And you have to sit there for three hours and let Kanye be the star. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. And when you watch the restraint that uh, Rogan put into this interview, the, the times when he could have jumped in and he held back, because he would let Kanye talk and then just stop and just sit there quietly until Kanye was ready to talk again. Because apparently Joe could tell that he wasn't done, that, that there was more to that, you know, that paint stroke. Uh, I don't know how to say enough about how good that was. And the reason I call it out is that you'll miss it if you're just watching Kanye. So watch them both. All right, so more about Kanye. Here's what I liked. He referred to himself um, sometimes as a designer and sometimes as an engineer. And you could listen to him talk about his interests from you know, music to fashion to politics now, but also his interest in... Uh, He's building shelters, and he's trying to design some kind of local, maybe indoor farming situation, and he's trying to design a community from the, from the home to the, you know, the, the, the feel of it, to the color, the space. And he talked about space as programming people, like the, the physical environment. He talked about it programming the people in it. You've never heard of anything like that from a standard politician, and it's exactly what's needed. In fact, at the end of the interview, I thought to myself, damn, you know what this country needs? It needs a redesign. And he's the guy to do it. The country needs a redesign. Now, if that, if that statement doesn't hit you like a punch in the face it's because you don't quite understand what he's talking about. Maybe watching the three hours would, would let you know. But everything that we do from the way we interact, the physical distance that we have to each other, how hard it is to get to work, the length of the commute, the, the quality of the shelter and how the, and how the space influences our minds and how all that will influence how we work together and our happiness, he is operating on a whole different level. And it's a better level. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a third dimension. And you can see him as he's talking from topic to topic to topic. You can see that he's building a talent stack very consciously. So he's, he's, adding, he's adding knowledge about uh, design of homes, knowledge about family, uh, about you know, hydroponic gardening. You know, he's adding that stuff. And he, as he's talking through it, you can see a brilliant guy who is very consciously adding layer after layer of skill that work together, and then when it's filtered through his special brain, it becomes a, you know, uh, he's a designer in all things. Everything he does is design. And like, unlike other designers who are outside their design and, and designing something, he lives inside his design. And right now he's living inside the United States and he's designing it from the inside, right in front of you. <laughs> it's, it's spectacular and wonderful. So I asked myself this. And, you know, Joe Rogan asked him some you know, presidential-sounding questions like, what would you do with you know, foreign adversaries and, and stuff like that? And, of course, Kanye had you know, just a, a good, smart answer that if you're president, you have better advisors, different information, and so you would just get the best advisors, et cetera. And that all made sense. But I will tell you that at the end of it, when you see the, when you see the quality and depth of his thinking, and you see that he sees, he sees things as systems, he doesn't see you know, individual slices of life, he only sees everything connected to everything. He sees it as a big design challenge, and he realizes that if you design it better, you get better outcomes he would be a great president. He really would be. He would be a great president. But let me say this again. I don't believe there's any such thing as a good president or a bad president. What I mean by that is that there are presidents who are, who are the perfect fit for the challenges, 
and then some who are not a good fit for those specific challenges. I thought Trump was just an amazing president for the first three and a half years, not exactly the right guy for a coronavirus pandemic because he's a little too optimistic for what that situation called for. But Trump is once again the perfect president for recovering an economy after a coronavirus. So what do you do? You've got got a tough choice there. Do you punish him for maybe not being the exact right fit? I mean, it's not like he saw it coming. You didn't see it coming. Uh, who knew that that would be the thing that we needed to, to deal with uh, this year? So the point is, could there be a situation where a Kanye president would be the perfect fit? And the answer is yes. I don't know if it's this year. I don't know if it's 2024. But he's a young guy. And if Kanye someday becomes president and becomes the designer-in-chief, designer-in-chief, we totally need that. Um, we totally need a designer-in-chief. Because here's, here's my take on the United States. The United States was designed once by the founders. Incredible job. You know, the, the Constitution, you know, the whole concept of our government... With, with every flaw that it has, it's incredible design. I mean, you have to admit at this point, it's lasted hundreds of years, copied by many, you know, highly successful. But it does need a redesign. You know, life has changed. Maybe we just need to tweak it a little bit. Connie's the guy. All right. Um, so that was very impressive, and that's enough on that. Um, See what else we got going on here? Did you notice that the protests stopped? Did you see any news about any protests last night? What does it tell you when all of these spontaneous protests can be turned on and off based on the election date? Because that's what's happening, right? Are we not watching uh, the protests being turned off because it's good for Biden if they just sort of temporarily get turned off? That is what we're seeing, right? So that tells you that they were maybe not real in the first place. Not real in the sense that there was obviously an organic element to it, but there must have been some organization that probably turned off the the switch. Um, As Steve Cortez noted, that at least in the final weeks, it's turning into uh, Trump, um, sort of uh, morning in America. He's, he's going optimistic. So Trump is going happy warrior, which he does really well. So as, as hard as Trump can be on things he doesn't like, the best, the best Trump is the happy warrior Trump with the optimistic Trump. And uh, I think we saw the beginning of that um, at the debate where Trump seemed to go positive. And I would say the country responded to that, wouldn't you? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but now that we're you know, s- several days away from the debate, wouldn't you say that the country has largely agreed that that was the president's best debate, and he usually does well in debates? So his, his best is actually a pretty high level because he does well in debates. It looks like he's going to ride that strategy to the end. I hope he does, because I think it's the right one. But um, Biden has become sort of uh, angry, get-off-my-lawn old man, and that's, that's the vibe he's going to take to the, the finish line, is angry old man, get-off-my-lawn. Do you want more of that? Does that make you go to the polls? Oh, he's yelling. I guess I'll vote because Biden is yelling and he's angry again. He looks a little deranged, doesn't he? Now, I don't know if, if that is actually a sign of anything, but the, way I, but the way I read it, when Biden's up there yelling on the campaign trail, he looks not well. It doesn't look like he's just a passionate patriot. He looks a little like there's something wrong. And that's the, that's the vibe he's decided to carry to the end. Um, there was a, uh, one of my Twitter followers tweeted that uh, now that he's learned about my, um, my political rantings, he can no longer enjoy Dilbert and can't follow me anymore. And he needed to say that in public. 
So rather than simply privately saying to himself, you know, I don't know, I I don't like this Dilbert comic anymore because I don't like the guy who makes it. Um, I'm not saying that would be, you know, irrational because we're all influenced by things like that. We're influenced by association. But why would you tweet it? (laughs) What would be the point of that? Why, Why would you need to confess your flaw in public? Because doesn't this look like his problem more than mine? If somebody can't enjoy Dilbert because they were once exposed to my political preference, it's not like I broke a law. It's not like I hurt somebody. It's not like I have some horrible stain in my reputation that you can no longer enjoy a comic strip that has nothing to do with any of that stuff. I would say that if you're confessing in public that you can no longer read Dilbert because you once were exposed to my legitimate and popular political opinions, because remember, my opinions match tens of millions of ordinary law-abiding citizens who just have a preference for politics. That's it. That's it. And for that... He needs to say in public that, that I am off his, his good list. Now, compare that to an award I recently received in the mail. I don't know if you'll be able to read it. Let me hold it up to the camera there, if you get the focus. So I'll read it to you. Uh, it says, to the Dilbert guy, uh, and it's a number one award for the, being a Donald Trump apologist and world's most disingenuous human, Scott Adams. I received this in the mail yesterday. Um, now, there's a story behind it. Uh, you may have noticed on Twitter that... Um, <laughs> why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Roseanne Barr's old husband... What's his name? What? Tom Arnold. Uh, I didn't do that intentionally. I actually literally blanked on his name. So uh, I guess it was a day and a half ago or so, Tom Arnold um, tweeted some nasty things at me. And the nasty thing he tweeted at me, because I just tweeted something about positive about Trump, he tweeted that the Dilber guy was a Donald Trump apologist and the world's most disingenuous human. And... I tweeted back because I wasn't in the mood for a fight and because I don't dislike Tom Arnold's uh, work because he has a different political opinion than I do. So unlike my uh, follower who decided he could not follow me uh, or watch Dilbert anymore, I didn't have any bad feeling about Tom Arnold, the fact that he doesn't like you know, my political opinions. It didn't have any effect on whether I would watch you know, his movie True Lies again or something. I, and I would like to think that that might be the better way to go. That if we're, if we're hating people, if we hate somebody's art because you don't like their political opinions, do you want to be that person? I mean, do you want to dislike half of the art in the world because probably those people who made that art don't agree with you on politics? I mean, is that... If you got your way of not seeing any of the art from the people who you don't like politically, would you be happier? Is that, is that the outcome you want? So anyway, so I tweeted back at Tom Arnold uh, that, uh, you know, is there an, any kind of a trophy involved with this honor? because I didn't take it seriously, and I don't have any bad feelings about Tom Arnold, because he has a political opinion. And he tweeted back that there's no trophy, but uh, he said something kind of funny. The way he worded it was pretty funny about uh, after, after Trump loses, he would take me down to the taxidermy place and have me stuffed. And it was funnier than it sounded. You'd, you'd have to see his exact wording. And uh, I laughed at that and tweeted back, um, but can I at least be posed by the taxidermist in a, in a ferocious kind of pose? And he tweeted back something funny about, you know, not, not Wolverine, 
ferocious, but maybe some other smaller animal ferocious. And I said, well, okay, I'll be the smaller animal. Can I wear a hat? Because I thought it looked cool if I were stuffed with a hat. Uh, and then he, then he tweeted back that it'd have to be a Biden hat, which was kind of funny. Anyway, so it started out with this uh, nasty insult, but sort of just degenerated into some funny tweets. And I think, isn't that the better way to go? You know, really, we're, we're going into this contentious, uh, this horribly contentious uh, situation. And let me say this out loud. If there are any, you know, if there are three Democrats in the world listening to this, I doubt it. But if there are, no matter which way the election goes, and I'm going to assume that it will be credible enough. I mean, we'll argue forever about little irregularities and who was doing what to whom during the election, but I think we'll have an election that, in the end, we'll know who won. If it turns out that Trump doesn't win, I'm not going to hate anybody on the other side. I'm not. I'm not going to have any bad feelings about it. I'll just say, okay, now what do I do? And I'll... I'll adjust my life from that point on to whatever I need to adjust. But I'm not going to hate my fellow Americans because you voted a different way. I would hope I would hope that you would have the same feeling about me. Now, I know there are a lot of uh, Democrats who are worried about the Republicans will start some kind of a civil war and a coup and all that. I can guarantee you that won't happen. I guarantee it. And the reason I guarantee it is because just look at the comments. The only way it would happen is if some kind of large number of conservatives wanted that to happen. And that's just not the case. There are no, I don't think there are any militias who want that to happen. There's nobody who wants to happen on the right. Nobody on the right wants any kind of an armed conflict in the United States, period. They don't want to start it, but... And this is a very important point. And if you're on the left, you need to hear this. The right will never start a fight in this country because they like this country. And they like law-abiding citizens of this country, of all colors, all types. I know it's a surprise. might surprise some of you, but it's just true. And they're not going to start shooting their their own country countrymen and country people. But if the trouble started, you wouldn't want to be on the other side. Let's put it that way. So I wouldn't bet on... Somebody says, don't bet on it. I would bet on it. I would bet 100% and every penny I have that the political right will not start some kind of a coup or revolution. Um... I would bet everything on that. There's no chance that's going to happen because they aren't, they aren't the people who do that. It's not something they want. It's not something they're planning for. Now, yeah, there's always some crazy militia who's planning on something, but it's not like they're going to activate. You know, you're not going to see the 100-person the militia come out of the woods and try to overthrow the government on November 10th or whatever. That's not going to happen. Uh, and, but they are ready if something happened from the other side. So if the left tried to overthrow the country, yeah, you might see those militias. Not might, you would. You would absolutely see them take, a, take some kind of a role. It might not be productive, but they would certainly... You'd notice them. You would know where they are. You'd know what they wanted. So they would make themselves known for sure. Uh, I don't think there's any chance of the country uh, descending into a violent revolution. So if you're worried about the aftermath of the election, let me tell you that no matter which way it goes, there will be low-level street violence, of course, because we're, we're just sort of in that mode where there's, there's somebody who's just ready to go at any point. But it will be a tiny, tiny slice of the public it will last however long it lasts, and then it will end. But you're not going to lose the United States. We are too committed to it. Um, 
collectively. We're too committed to keeping this country a country. All right. What if the election is rigged? If the election is rigged, it will go to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court um, votes on it, the people will say, ah, I hate that, but I still kind of trust the Supreme Court. 80% of the country will say, hey, if, if the Supreme Court ruled on it, we're going to be okay with that even if we hate it. Because I think we're well-trained to support the system up to, up to that point. All right, so uh, don't be afraid of what happens after. There will be trouble, there will be lots of news. None of it will be permanent. And that is what I wanted to tell you. Now, you ready for a scoop? You ready? Those of you who stayed to the end, you ready? Um, in a few hours, I'm going to do an offline interview that I'm going to record with one of the members of the Nexium, what you would call a cult, and what they might call an organization or a company. So um, I will put that up as soon as uh, it's ready. So I'll put that on YouTube, and it will be a recorded interview with one of the women, uh, and I'll tell you more about it later, but one of the women who actually is branded. So Keith Rainier who is the head of that, what is called a cult. They would not call it a cult. Um, and you'll see that. And that's going to be interesting. Because I can tell you already that it's going to break some news. Because uh, we talked already, so I know a little bit about what's coming. And it will, will break some news. So you're going to hear some things that um, will surprise you. All right. Uh, ACB, are they... Uh, are they voting that today? When does uh, Amy Coney Berry get confirmed? I stopped watching that because there's nothing interesting about it. Uh, Amy Coney uh, Barrett is so qualified, and then you add on top of that the fact that she's a woman, and it's just hard to say anything bad about her. <laughs> you know, she the the funniest thing about Amy Coney Barrett is that she she just eliminated everybody's opposition. Because everybody wanted to go hard at her. And they're like, ah, you are so qualified. Oh, you've got seven kids. We can't even say anything bad about you. So that's it. All right, that's it for now. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Slaughter meters at 100%. And we'll talk tomorrow.